the evidence is showing that cities all around the state are more than willing and, and are actively engaged in trying to craft good, smart, you know, housing policies. Welcome to the AWC City Voice podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter to Washington cities. Today, we're going to focus on housing and homelessness. And to do that, we have with us Carl Schrader. He's the Deputy Director of Government Relations for AWC. Welcome, Carl, and thank you for being here. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation. Certainly. And Carl, I understand that the session has kicked off and it's a busy time for you. And today in particular has been a busy day. Can you tell us some of the housing related uh, activities that you've been involved with today? Brian, you're right. It has been a busy day on housing issues here on the 18th of, of January when we're recording this. We've had the official public hearing of two major bills that the governor has requested that deal with local land use and housing policies. And because we had a general idea of the direction the governor was looking to go, which was to uh, step in and basically make land use and zoning decisions for cities with a goal of increasing access and diversity of housing types and, uh, and affordability within cities by taking some of those decisions from the local level and bringing them to the state level. We've been doing a lot of research, getting ready for this hearing and developing our understandings of what, what cities are doing on this issue to begin with. So I should probably rewind and, and give you just a sense of the types of housing that the governor's bills deal with frequently referred to as the missing middle. And the idea basically is we have a, you know, a fairly robust single family detached, you know, white picket fence in a yard housing market here in the state. Uh, many cities have developed around that uh, use type. And then there's a large multifamily, hundreds of units, many, many stories, frequently considered like high rises. And advocates and cities as well have, have noticed that there are a lot of needs for alternatives to that so that folks can live in more residential communities and be able to afford access to those with things like duplexes and triplexes and, and a variety of other things. The governor's proposal in, in a nutshell requires cities over 10,000 to allow duplexes everywhere. And if they have any major transit within a half a mile of that transit, they have to authorize at least quadplexes. And then for larger cities, um, those requirements go up to six units around on every single residential parcel around transit and four units uh, in all other parts of the community. And we heard testimony about the significant difference that that level of zoning would entail compared to what many cities are allowing today, which is one of the concerns that city officials raised this morning. But the bigger issue in my mind is there hasn't been a recognition or a wrestling with the reality on the ground that many cities are already authorizing this type of housing. So for instance, we know that there are 150 cities at least, which is more than half in the state that are allowing these missing middle housing types in their single family residential zones. And so when we would point that out, advocates on the other side would say, well, yeah, maybe, but that's just a little portion of the town. You know, we're talking about big changes. We went back to the drawing board and started to ask more detailed questions of our cities through surveys and independent research to identify the scope of that type of authority. And we've found now that at least 50 cities 
um, allow mixed single and multifamily in, in at least 75% of their residential land base. So this is a authority that is, despite the rhetoric, very broadly applied around the state. And the reality is we're not seeing those types of units being built to this, the pace, the, the speed and the level that cities would want, that housing advocates want, that urbanists want. And in, instead of looking into those issues in more detail, this bill basically assumes if we do this everywhere, we're gonna get a different outcome. It's based on some uh, very aggressive proposals in other states, Oregon and California in particular, which have made this decision to take this policy area away from the local governments to a large degree and make these decisions at the state level. And there's a desire to replicate that here in Washington. One of the challenges is we those other states and some of the big cities around the country that are not in Washington who have upzoned to that degree, it hasn't been in place long enough to know if it's been effective yet. So we're, we're making major changes to the way the state has historically decided how we're going to grow. Um, for very little defined benefit. And especially when you look at the scope of Washington's authorization of these housing types, if it was going to be as um, immediately successful and impactful as, as folks would hope, it feels to us that we would see evidence of that. Um, so it's been characterized by the folks who believe that local officials cannot stand up to their neighborhoods and existing residents and make the tough decisions to authorize these alternative housing types and the state needs to step in and then great things will happen. Well, we've got evidence on both sides. We have evidence that city officials are indeed uh, making decisions in single family neighborhoods to change their character over time and to authorize alternative types of housing. And then we also have all of this data of existing development capacity that's not being utilized. And so there's been this kind of idea that if you zone it, they will come but it doesn't seem to be working, right? And so one of our major pushes as we continue this discussion with the state is, especially if you're gonna do something like mandating that cities authorize more broadly these types of housing, if we want it to actually be built, we need to put resources into the construction of that housing. And we think that those resources should be aimed towards constructing these housing types in a way that they will be affordable for uh, the lower income residents of the state of Washington. And uh, market reality is the private sector is not going to build anything that they cannot sell for a profit. And they've got the opportunity to build these things and they're not building them. Leads me to believe that it is not profitable. There are not the, the buyers and sellers that are you know, expected to be out there in the wing, waiting in the wings. Yeah, thank you, Carl. So that makes sense. I mean, on the one hand, what it sounds like what the governor is saying is something that we agree with that uh, increased availability of diverse housing types is a desirable thing. And so we support that. And that's something we'd like to see too. We just don't think that the way to do that is by arresting this authority from local decision makers and, and mandating blanket changes to zoning laws across the state. Is that a fair way to put it? Yeah, that's a good summary, I'd say. And we're still pretty early in the process. You know, unfortunately, the way that this proposal was developed, it wasn't something that cities were at the table in the drafting of. And so we saw the finished product of the process that the governor's office came through, went through to put that bill together. We have submitted comments. The letter you reference is available on our legislative bulletin. And we're expecting the first sort of major stakeholder discussion later this week. Great. Thank you, Carl. Is there anything that you would suggest as an alternative solution to increasing housing diversity? 
Yeah, absolutely. And we have been working hard on those types of alternatives over the last several years. And the one that has been most successful is an incentive-based approach where the state identifies preferred policies that we can either directly adopt with the planning support necessary to get those to the top of the agenda and the docket, right, so that they happen quickly. And more importantly, I guess, or more potentially more impactfully, there is an opportunity for cities to do what's called a housing action plan, where the state set out some parameters, but essentially the city would get together with the, uh, the, the relevant parties within the community. So people who need housing, people who build housing, the business community, the planning planners, regional bodies in some cases, and really get down to the very nitty gritty. What are the market realities in our community? What do we need to change to get better outcomes and essentially develop the really local version of these types of, of policies? And it's been very successful. So just for example, the first version of this passed in 2019 and between cities that just took the opportunity to adopt specific codes or create sub-area plans which reduce environmental review responsibilities for new development, or implementing or creating those housing action plans. Already since 2019, and, and I'll remind you, we've been in a pandemic for two-thirds of that, 88 cities have, have chosen one of those two options, which represents 79% of the incorporated population in the state. So we've already shown the willingness and the receptivity from cities to take an outstretched hand of assistance. And we think that's a much preferable approach. It helps to provide support and resources for locally developed and attuned plans, which are more likely to be successful in achieving the outcomes we want. And it doesn't uh, eliminate the, the fundamental benefit of local democracy and the ability to talk to your uh, city council officials and mayors who you see in the in the grocery store and that sort of thing who are who are close to your community and understand the different real nuanced dynamics what the governor's bill unfortunately does is is move that decision making to olympia and in that case your community has three elected representatives who would be from your city unless you're a large one that's split but the 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 rest of the decision making the other 146 members more than likely don't even represent your area and don't know the, the, the local circumstances that really might justify an alternative approach. So we think there's a lot of benefit. We've shown the fact that cities are willing and willing to move, want to move forward on this, and it's, it's not necessary to remove that local democracy element. That sounds like a, a promising approach, but I know that we do support some of the currently proposed legislation, Senate Bill 5818, uh, is one that promotes housing constructions in, in cities. Can you talk about 5818? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one we're really excited about. Senator Jesse Solomon from the Shoreline area has introduced it. Um, we worked with the Senator and Representative Joe Fitzgibbon, who's a leader in the House of Representatives on this. And this is about making some changes to the State Environmental Policy Act to uh, make it easier for cities who want to adopt these types of housing supportive policies. So it does a number of things. The most uh, important one is it says that any actions by a city to implement their housing action plan are not subject to appeal under the State Environmental Policy Act. And SEPA is a really critical underpinning of the state's environmental laws, but it was created in the 1970s before there were other laws that addressed similar impacts. 
And as we've seen the regulatory environment in the state change over the last uh, 50 years, we've layered on new things, Growth Management Act, Shoreline Management Act, a variety of stormwater requirements, et cetera. So the, the environmental impacts associated with housing development are generally addressed in those other existing laws. And when you require then to go back and do another SEPA review, it, it takes time for the applicant. It costs the applicant money because they're holding a loan on their property and they're not able to move forward with it yet. And it, it, it um, causes city of uh, planning officials to review documents to determine environmental impact when they already know there won't be one. Okay, so removing that layer or peel of the onion is beneficial for a lot of different reasons from a development point of view, a city point of view, and an urbanist point of view because it facilitates uh, more development. So what the bill does is, in addition to that, allows cities to uh, increase what are called, well, this is really dorky, but categorical exemption levels. And those are types of projects and decisions that cities make that are categorically exempt from SEPA, which means they do not need to go through SEPA appeal. A big one, we spent a lot of time trying to promote multifamily development. The current legal authority is for cities to uh, authorize units that are or buildings that are 60 units or below do not have to go through the SEPA process. This proposal would increase that threshold to 200 units or below. City would have to take a decision to raise to that level. They could choose not to, et cetera. But you know, it's, it's a powerful new authority for cities who feel like they have robust enough environmental codes to remove some barriers to housing construction in a way that doesn't dilute the environmental protections we all care about and makes it quicker and more cost effective for development. Great. And what do you think the prospects are for that particular bill? You know, I, I'm uh, pleasantly hopeful, uh, cautiously optimistic. I don't know what <laughs> sort of <laughs> thing you want to hear on it. I think it's good. I, I've feel hopeful about it. One of the reasons is that the, the folks who were developing it and, and worked with us over the interim to do so are uh, smart, strong legislators with credibility with the environmental community and others who might uh, worry about unintended consequences with these sorts of bills. That's a huge help. Well, I want to call out House Bill 1981 by Representative Paulette and he represents North Seattle and, and Kenmore and some of the communities just on the border of Seattle. Uh, speaking of strong environmental champions, um, he's most uh, famous for leading the charge to make sure that the Hanford Nuclear Reservation didn't um, pollute the state. So, you know, that's where he comes from. Um, his approach is somewhat similar to the governor's bill that it, it does include density mandates. It's got a little more flexibility and alternative approach. Uh, as I said, we don't necessarily think those are critical to achieving the goals that we share. But what's really impressive about his proposal is it, it um, takes the, the issue head on by recognizing that we need revenue to address these challenges. And again, the market, private market in many, many communities will never build to something that is affordable to people at 50 or 60% of the median income and below. And we have a huge gap in that type of housing. So we need to complement that with public, private, nonprofit resources if we want to see buildings actually constructed and um, inhabited by people at the lower income spectrum. So he took a politically risky approach to introduce a new real estate excise tax option for cities and counties to choose to tax a sale of real estate in their community to support these things. The real estate excise tax is a um, tax on the sale of property. Uh, it is 
as you know, the sale of real estate and the cost of real estate has been going up at an astronomically fast pace, right? The, the example that I've been using is my own home appreciated since the pandemic about 50%, which is wow. kind of ridiculous because nothing has happened except my kids have drawn on the walls more. But were I to sell that, I would re reap all of that benefit and I would be contributing to a out of control real estate market. Maybe that's a strong statement, but you know, the reality is the cost of housing is making the cost of renting go up. The folks who are lucky enough to have the means to get into the home ownership market are shrinking. Those of us who had the, you know, the luck and the grace to get into that market <clears throat> even four or five years ago are seeing massive increases in wealth. And we think it does make sense to, to take an increment of that to reinvest so that we can provide housing for those who cannot afford to get into that market. And, you know, I think you know this, Brian, but home ownership is really on a really important underpinning of wealth building, generational wealth building. And the more that we can support people getting into that, the better it is for society. And that doesn't mean that we don't want to have rentals either. Those are, of course, needed. But the reality is, you know, people talk about rent control, talk about a controversial topic, but the 30-year mortgage is rent control for people who can afford to get into it. And that's getting more and more out of place for people. And those of us who have had the benefit of that have not had to weather the storm that we've seen in the economy and the real estate market over the last several years because we locked in a you know monthly rate on a 30-year mortgage, right? And that opportunity is shrinking and also becoming more important given all of those dynamics. Now, what else do you anticipate for 2022? Well, before we move to 2022, I just want to talk about one other bill that happened last year that I think bears on the conversation we've been having today, Great. which is House Bill 1220. And, you know, it really actually speaks really directly to some of the premise and the intent of the, the governor's bills and some of these other proposals we've seen this year, which is to try to take action to address some of the historic inequities that have been caused by local zoning policies, local land use policies, especially in the past, those were explicitly race-based um, to keep um, certain communities out of certain areas. And that was made illegal sometime many, many years ago. And there was a, a movement right after that to use other means to um, keep um, races separated in the communities of the country. This is certainly not just a Washington thing was backed up by the federal government and how they were providing home loans in the, the first time that the, the government began to back home loans. Anyway, there's a very long history of this, which um, has been difficult to wrestle with as an organization representing cities. We don't, uh, you know, our, cities like to be able to control their own destiny and talk about their own things, but there are obviously appropriate direction the state provides to us to, to think about these sorts of things. And this is one, that I feel really good about that we did not get any opposition from cities to do. And it was, you know, very specific types of language to um, identify and implement policies and regulations to address and begin to undo racially disparate impacts, displacement and exclusion in housing caused by local policies, plans and actions. So we, we supported that language. We, we fought a lot about this bill actually, but not any of that part because it really does make sense. We need to wrestle with this history. Now we think there's a lot of solutions to the problems that we're talking about here that are not, you don't need to say, this is the only way you're gonna do that. But we don't, 
and nor do cities want to put our heads in the sand on that element of this issue. So I was happy that we were able to take that head on. What else do you anticipate for 2022? Well, one of the biggest things that we're hopeful uh, for in the housing space is actually focused largely on the homelessness challenges that are really pernicious around the state. And I don't need to tell the listeners of this podcast that that is not just a you know, centripetal sound problem. This is a challenge that's facing everyone. And uh, for all the talk of our concerns about the governor's missing middle bills, uh, the other portion of his um, package around housing and homelessness is, is very um, well received and, and necessary to uh, turn the corner on some of these challenges. So there, he has proposed uh, north of $500 million to uh, support rapid acquisition of housing. So that's a new model that's um, been tried out in the economic downturns associated with the pandemic, where because the um, hotel and um, vacation industry had, had slowed down so much, there were opportunities to purchase hotels and convert them, you know, not immediately, but in very short order to um, you know, housing and shelter for people who are currently living on the streets. Um, obviously, that's that's great. Um, you know, you want to make sure that there's an opportunity to help decide where those make the most sense and, you know, that kind of thing. But um, more resources are needed, more beds are needed. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times we talk about that there is not going to be a solution to the homelessness problem unless there is someone for folks who are living somewhere for for folks who are living outside to live inside, and we do not have the capacity um, statewide at all. And this is another one of these challenges. Without public dollars, the private sector cannot and will not and should not build housing for people who are living on the streets who literally have no income. So the the state and the local governments, and, and we've um, fought for local taxing authority to do this and that sort of thing, partnered with the homelessness advocates and others on almost every front to generate more resources to this problem. And I don't want to say that the problem can be solved by throwing money at it all uh, on its own, nor do I want to say that the system that we're investing in is perfect. I mean, I think there's it's clear to anybody who uh, drives around the state that we're not as successful as we'd like to be. I will give a lot of credit to the folks who work in that sphere. If you think about the Great Recession and the crazy cost of rental housing and um, you know the pandemic and everything else, I don't think it's fair to say, oh, well, it's a failure. Look at these folks who are um, living on so many of our streets. Where would they be without that level of effort? So this is not meant to, to denigrate at all the existing system, but we can do better and we not need to do better and there's no way you can do better without more money, too. So uh, very excited about that proposal. There's also investments in the Housing Trust Fund, which is the state's preeminent capital investment program for housing, which will ensure that um, we can build more of that housing that's affordable, again, for people at the very low income uh, spectrum. So we're, we're really excited about that. I believe that there are some opportunities that the state uh, legislature may uh, follow the, the leadership of the governor on this issue, and, and we'll be talking to, to folks about that. And maybe that's a segue, um, Brian, I don't know how many more questions you have, but right here, I, I wanna take the opportunity, city officials need to weigh in with, the, with their legislators. Um, I shouldn't say this maybe as an, an employee of the Association of Washington Cities, but um, it, we can only be as effective as our members um, allow us to be. And on controversial issues that we're talking about right, right now, 
they need to be expressing their position and feelings about them and talking to their legislators and encouraging their legislators to work with us who can do the day-to-day -day work to um, negotiate these bills into a place that achieve those outcomes, maybe without some of the negative consequences that we've been talking about. Well, Carl, in your defense, there are uh, the legislative advocacy team is seven strong, something like that, seven or eight individuals. And we've got thousands, a couple thousand um, elected officials across the state that are locally elected by their communities to represent their communities. It only makes sense that uh, you're going to be a lot stronger when you're working on in concert with those locally elected officials. Yeah, and I guess in, on these topics, the most important thing to do is share your experience, what you have tried, what has worked, what has not worked, what the consequences of some of these approaches would be, both positive and negative. And um, uh, early, often, and frequent, right? The, the, the legislature is moving is almost essentially entirely virtual right now. Emails are a better way to get into touch with people than they have been in the past. Cell phones are still working in 2022. Uh, text, um, and, you know, and again, don't feel like you need to have all the answers. I think sharing your experiences really helps the decision-making process. Great, and for those who wanna stay involved, we have City Action Days. It's coming up this Thursday, so make plans to attend that if you have not already. Um, we also have our weekly legislative bulletin, so watch your inbox for that. And uh, Carl, they should see news of uh, new proposed legislation having to do with housing, homelessness, and a lot of other important issues if they'll watch the legislative bulletin. And then uh, in the spring, so within a couple months, we, they should expect to see in their uh, physical mailboxes a new copy of City Vision magazine, which is focused on housing. So lots of ways to to learn. We're hosting a city action call every Friday at 1230, and you can check the legislative bulletin each Monday to register for that. Yeah, and that's a really great opportunity to track the ins and outs of the progress of some of these bills. If you have questions, uh, unless I have a conflict, I'll be there every Friday. And if that doesn't work for you, please uh, feel free. All of your AWC lobbyists on any issue are more than happy and excited to get direct feedback from city officials. So email, call, text, um, get in touch if you'd like to be more engaged. Well, thank you, Carl. Thank you for your time uh, today talking on the podcast. Thank you for your work in the session and in those hearings. And we look forward to see what's going to happen uh, this legislative session with housing and homelessness. Thanks, Brian.